The great Baptist preacher Tony Campolo was driving home late from uh, one afternoon from work on the, on the Philadelphia Expressway when he heard a loud pop underneath his car. He knew immediately that it was a flat tire. Now, the expressway was crowded with, with rush hour traffic, and he did his best to pull all the way over to the far right side of the, of the expressway, but, but he couldn't quite get off, and he ended up blocking that far right-hand lane. It was a hot and muggy day. He knew it was going to be a sweaty job, but he got out of his car, left the radio playing so he could hear something while he was working on it, and got the jack out and jacked up the car and began changing the flat tire. As he listened to the radio, the, the uh, traffic reporter in the helicopter above all the freeways in, in, in Philadelphia came on and reported that the expressway was now backed up in both directions. And in fact, in one direction, it was completely stopped. There was a shutdown. So many cars, they were just stopped bumper to bumper, almost moving not at all. He wondered about that. He thought, is there some kind of a catastrophe going on in, in Philadelphia? Is the, did the president come to visit? What's, what's happening? A moment later, the helicopter said, as I drive over, as I fly over the expressway, I can see that there is a brown sedan in the far right lane changing its tire. I believe that sedan has shut down the entire expressway. And Tony said, that's me. I've done that. Oh my goodness, right now children are missing their parents and lovers are not meeting and business opportunities are falling apart because of me, because I have shut down everything around and about me. It was for him kind of a moment of rush, uh, uh, of power, of, of control. Even though it was a negative thing, he still says in his book, Choosing Love Over Power, which is one of the inspirations of this series, he says in his book, it just felt good to be able to control and command so much. I wonder if we know about that. I wonder if we've experienced, some of you might have experienced that in your own way, of, of just a little glimpse of control, just a little bit of power at home or at school, church even, your business and government. Just even, even the slightest, silliest kind of thing can feel good to feel like we're in charge, we're in command. Give us a little rush of, of, of being like the king or something, as, as it were. A couple of weeks ago, there was a thunder, thunderstorms rolling through Columbus. Julie and I were in our TV room. She was watching TV. I had my computer out. We're doing some, I was doing some work while keeping one eye on, on the news. When all of a sudden, there was a little, little electrical surge, and, and the TV just sizzled, popped, was done. No picture, no sound, no nothing. We tried all the things that you're supposed to do, turned it off and on, left it, turned all the power off to it, etc. didn't come back on. Julie called the next day and said, um, hi, we are TV, it's about 10 years old, we'd like somebody to come out and do some repair. And basically what we learned was, if it's that old, it's gonna cost so much to, for the guy to come visit and so much more for the, for the parts and the labor and all, the, by the time you spend all that, you might as well get a new TV. Well, that wasn't a bad thing. We said, okay, fine, it's old, it's time for a new one. We went to Costco, found a new TV, have you bought a new TV lately? There's a lot of technological stuff you got to deal with. There are all kinds of things. I set it up in the TV room. <clears throat> the dog could tell I was stressed, and he slunked away, you know? <laughs> Didn't want to deal with me at all. He went and hid way at the other end of our little apartment. And I played at that thing. I struggled over it for about an hour, for about an hour and a half. Finally, though, I figured it out. I followed the instructions. I got the TV up hooked it up, turned it on, even plugged in the old sound system. It had sound. It was working. I called Julie. I said, Julie, you got to come see this. And somehow this, I don't know, this inner caveman in my personality took over. And I said, as she walked in, I am Glenn. I am king of TV land. <laughs> and she said, uh, your highness, would you take the trash out, please, when you get a chance? <laughs> are those silly examples? Of course they are. 
Of course they are. But there's a little rush, isn't there? There's a little, there's a little feeling of, oh yeah, I, I did that. I made this happen. I, I found out how to control it, and I made it work. It's, it's the Greek philosopher Euripides who said, the gods, in order to destroy humans, first made them drunk with power. That's an almost biblical truth, isn't it? It's, it's drunkenness with power and control and command that can lead us down dangerous pathways. In the story that we heard today, Satan is making a bet that Jesus will give into power in the same way that Tony Campolo and I did in our own silly little examples, but it's, he's making a much bigger bet on a much larger stage. By the way, I want you to know this. When you hear the word Satan in the Bible, I want, I want to let you know where that, that originate. You go back to the Old Testament, back to uh, the book of Job, which is probably the oldest story in the Bible, older even than the creation stories. It has a, uh, an oral tradition to it. Before any of it was written down, this story of Job was probably told a thousand or two or three thousand years even before the time of, of Jesus. In that story, the Satan, it's just a Hebrew word, ha-satan, for the one who accuses. In that story, the Satan is a part of the heavenly court, this accusing one, sort of like a prosecuting attorney. And there's probably a joke in there somewhere about attorneys and Satan, but I won't, I won't go there this morning. He's, like, he's acting like a prosecuting attorney, though, where he's in the heavenly court saying to God, you know, your, your servant Job, he'll, he'll commit some sins if you stop making his life so easy and so full and, and so abundant. That's who this one is. It's only over hundreds, really even thousands of years before this character evolves into what we know of as the devil or the Satan. I don't want us to get caught up literally in this, whether you're tempted by evil or Satan or the devil or Darth Vader or whatever it is. What I want us to understand this morning in a non-literal way is that evil does exist and the temptations are there. So in, in, this, in today's readings, this one, this evil one comes to Jesus in the wilderness with temptations. I want you to know that Jesus has just had an amazing spiritual experience. In the text immediately before the story that Morgan read, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. It's the official beginning of his ministry. When he emerges from the water, he has this, this strange sacred experience where he hears a voice from heaven. You are my child. You are the beloved one. In you I am pleased. Hear that. In his baptism, at the beginning of his work, Jesus experiences the beauty of God's love. And by the way, last week at Akita, at our camp Akita, Julie and I were there for family camp. I spoke at Vespers every, every day. In one of those services, we baptized an infant. And we read that text before this one, the one of Jesus' baptism. And I said to them, and I want to say to you, in this congregation, we understand not the doctrine of original sin, but the doctrine of original goodness. That child in my arms at Akita last weekend was already, already pleasing in the sight of God's eye. The same thing happens to Jesus. He's had this incredible experience. He understands that he is God's chosen one. He is God's beloved child. And then, and then, he's thrown into the wilderness. And then he's sent into temptation to wrestle with evil, to wrestle with the devil, whatever we want to call it. 
it's a, it's a sign for us that no matter how deep our spiritual lives become, no matter how strong we become in our faith, as it says in Genesis, sin is always crouching at the door, waiting to pounce. The same is true for Jesus. And the devil comes to him. And, and note, note a couple things here. It's fascinating to me about these temptations. The devil says to, to him, here, here's, here's a stone, change it into bread. Feed yourself, feed the world. Uh, here, 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 is all, here are all the kingdoms of the world. If you'd like to be in charge, I'll put you in charge. You know the politics of our world are a mess, he said. Could use your leadership. What was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. And then the third one is get up on the highest, highest point of the sanctuary at 1320 Cambridge and jump down from there and let your angels save you and hold you. It'll inspire the congregation. It'll bring more folks into the church. It'll be a great thing. Why don't you do it? Now look at all three of those things. On, the fa on face value, none of them are bad. In fact, not only that, Jesus did all of these things in one way or another. Feeding hungry, that's a good thing. We do it here. We have our heart-to-heart -heart ministry, our own food pantry. It's not a bad thing. Jesus did it. Several stories in the Gospels of Jesus feeding the hungry. Uh, did Jesus involve himself in the politics? Not directly. Did he affect the politics? Absolutely. He was killed by the politicians of the day as an enemy of the state because he, pro he proclaimed to them this way of love and mercy and, and forgiveness. And the politicians were upset by that. Did he perform miracles and mighty things that, that got people's attention and inspired them? Of, of course he did. All of those things happened. The temptation is not what but why? The Satan was putting before him the opportunity for personal power and glory. Anytime, you can be assured, anytime anyone in leadership in any position is putting themselves in that place because they are seeking their own personal power and glory, they are essentially, in the understanding of this story, choosing to worship Satan to worship evil anytime anyone in any place makes that choice. They've chosen evil over good. You see, anyway, another thing about temptation, we, we tend to think that temptation is to do something really, really, really bad, like, like perhaps drink too much. But no one who, who drinks too much ever said to themselves at the beginning of that moment, today I'm going to drink so much that tomorrow I wake up really sick and I'm hungover for a couple of days and I have a terrible pounding headache. No one said that. No, the, the temptation to drink is more like what Bill, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous, experienced. What he experienced was when he had a drink or two, he sort of relaxed. He'd become the life of the party. He'd become a fun guy. And the more he drank, the more he relaxed, and the better he felt. And, and the next thing you know, he was addicted to alcohol in a way that he never imagined he could have been. What was really going on in his soul? He was afraid of himself. He was afraid that people would see him for whom he really is. And so he used the alcohol to cover his fear. The alcohol or the food or the money or the power or the control is not the problem. The problem is the desire to cover up, to puff oneself up. You see, in, in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo is called upon to destroy the one ring of power. You might remember the story if you've seen the movies or read the books. Yes, I have. I've read The Lord of the Rings through three times. I've read The Hobbit at least 10 times. Marvelous, wonderful stories. But at the heart of it is the story that we face this morning. Frodo 
fights all kinds of evil to get to what's called Mount Doom, this volcano-like place where it's the one place where he can destroy this one ring of power and all of Middle Earth can be set free. It's all those things that he faces, though, that are nothing compared to the final temptation of holding on to the ring for himself. In his mind, he says, I could keep this ring. I could do good. I could help people. Why not just keep it for myself? What well, do you see the struggle that's there? It's the personal struggle for power and glory over doing the finally what is the right thing. I, I love the way the devil has been portrayed in a couple of movies about Jesus. I'm not a big fan of Jesus movies because I like the story better. I read the story. I read the book. I like it better than the movies. But a couple of times to do things well. In one movie, it came out about five years ago. It was a TV movie about the life of Jesus. And maybe you remember seeing this. Here's Jesus in the wilderness in his robes, long hair, beard, sandals, all of that. And he's tempted by a man, a handsome 40-year-old man in a dark Armani suit. The devil comes to him, not with a cartoon-like character with horns and a tail that waves and a red suit or something like that. No, no, no. It comes making sense, looking good, looking handsome. Look, hey, come on, Jesus, look at me. I can help you here. I can give you some power. I can give you some control. You and me together, we can make this happen. In, in the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, based on Nikos Kazantzakis' novel of the same, same title, the final temptation in Kazantzakis' understanding is Jesus on the cross. And this beautiful angel-like creature appears before him. It's a 10-year-old, maybe 11-year-old girl, blonde hair, flowing, glowing white robes. She's just hovering there, and she comes to him and she says, you know, you have the ability, you have the power to get down off of this cross. Why don't you just get down and go and get married and have children and lead a long life? Why, why go through all of this? This is so silly. Do you see who that is? It's evil. It's, it's the devil. It's Satan. It's whatever name you want to use for that source. Jesus instead chooses sacrificial love over power. The toughest temptations we face in life always mask themselves with beauty and logic and common sense. The logic is a lie, but at the beginning it seems so real, so true. It's also Tony Campola who points out that, that power, the, the difference between power and authority and how we can choose one over the other. Power is the ability to control what happens in a family or a company or a church or a school or whatever, or even a country. Authority is something that someone has as a result of the sacrificial way they've lived their life, of the way they're willing to do whatever it takes to move things forward. In my family, my father gave in to the temptation of control all the time. I did what my dad said I had to do because I had no other choice. And let me be clear about this. I don't want to offend, but if I didn't, if the children in our family didn't, seriously, there was hell to pay. He had power and control. My mom had authority. I did what she wanted me to do because I saw in her a willingness to do whatever she could for her children to care for them, love them, feed them, and clothe them. When my parents' marriage broke apart, primarily because of my father's own, ironically, addictive issues, my mother worked 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And now looking back with hindsight, I can see how amazing it was that she gave herself to all of that in order to simply keep food on the table so that her sons and daughters could have enough to eat 
My dad had power. My mom had authority. In the same way Jesus' life is described, Paul says that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, the form of a servant. In the Greek, it's doulos. It literally means slave. Power was not something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself, walked away from it. Barbara Brown Taylor says that Jesus' death on the cross is an additional sign of his willingness to put an end to the myth of redemptive violence, an end to the myth that power can finally beat power. Instead, he gave himself over not in power and violence, but in love and sacrifice and in grace. The history of the world, though, demonstrates that violence in response to violence continues to be the temptation that we give ourselves into. What would it look like if we could finally allow Jesus' life to inspire the church in a way that says to our country and to our world, we must stop this violence. We must stop giving in to the use of power and weapons of war to control. Marcus Borg, the brilliant theologian who has filled this pulpit, said several years ago, justice asks why are there so many victims? And then seeks to change the causes of the victimization. That is the way the system is structured. Justice is about social transformation. What does God offer in response to the evil of violence in the world? Nothing less than love. In God's eyes, that's enough. Still though, we're tempted by power. Reading a fascinating book just came out a year or two ago called The End of Power. The author is arguing that power as we understood it is completely changing. It's being flattened. It's affecting governments, schools, businesses, even churches and other nonprofits. The way we used to use power no longer works. And here's the powerful example that he gives. Do you know that, that Al-Qaeda spent $500,000 to pull off the attacks on the United States of America on 9-11 in 2001, $500,000. In response, as of 2013, we had spent $3.3 trillion. Do the math. For every dollar that Al-Qaeda spent to attack us, we spent $7 million in response. And 17 years later, we're still slogging through this unending war. I mean, just think about this for a moment. I, do I want to be safe? Of course. When, when 9-11 happened, I, I drove to the schools where my sons were attending. I picked them both up and took them home. I went home and found in my garage an American flag. I went outside and stuck it up on my, on my garage. It was my way of saying, I am an American and these are my boys. I'm going to stand with my family. I'm going to stand with my fellow Americans. And I, I want to see this terrorism end. Of course, did I want to be safe? Do we want to be safe? Of course. But at what cost? I mean, just think about it. If we spent a third of a trillion, just one trillion, a third of that money, what would that do for the infrastructure that we need so desperately in the United States? What would it do to feed people around this country and around the world? What would it do to bring clean water to more people in the world? We, asked, we go back to Marcus Borg's question about why are there so many victims? It was Jesus, the one who we proclaim as Lord and Savior, as the, as, as the perfecter of our faith, who chose not violence on the cross, but instead emptied himself, choosing the way of love. You know, there was a sermon preached a couple of Sundays after 9-11. I watched it on television. It's a big Presbyterian church down in Florida. 
the pastor said, the teachings of Jesus, they don't apply in this instance. And I got to tell you, I was tempted to agree with them. I was tempted to say, yeah, you're darn right. Boy, oh boy, yeah. And then I turned the TV off. You see, because Jesus said, if someone forces you to take their pack for a mile, walk two. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. These weren't just nice thoughts for a sermon on the side of a hill. This was a way of life, inviting you and me to move forward in faith, not giving in to the temptation of power, but instead to follow Jesus in the way of love. Because in Jesus' way, love always, always trumps power. Amen.